This is a dill pickle, a mighty pretty pickle, especially when he joins you at the show. We have lots of pretty pickles waiting for you at the refreshment center. They're plump, tender, mouth-watering. Wouldn't one taste good right now? Hello, welcome once again to Cinema a la Carte, a podcast part of the Dark Discussions News Network. I am one of your co-hosts, Phil, from the state of New Hampshire in the U.S. of A., and with me in the state of Michigan. This is Eric. Hey, Eric, how's it going, man? I am well. Excellent, excellent. And in the state of New York. Hey, this is Mike. Mike, how's how's it going, sir? Uh, I've been better. I, uh... I was attacked by a coked-up horn, a crazy, fucked-up dentist. Ah, yes, yes. Farewell, farewell. Uh, for uh, folks who are curious, uh, this podcast is part of the Dark Discussions News Network, which is www.darkdiscussions.com. Our email is actually darkdiscussions at aol.com because that email encompasses uh, most of the podcasts on the network that your co-host may be a part of. And you can also email us at www.darkdiscussions.com. Com, which is a contact us um, in there in the menu on any page, and it will open up an email box. You can email us your opinions, and we will read your emails on the podcast. Uh, just make sure to uh, mention that this email would be for Cinema a la Carte and not one of the other podcasts, so we will know to read it on this podcast here. Uh, now, Eric, what else can people find on www.darkdiscussions.com? Uh, they can find a link to our Patreon account. If you're listening to a podcast, you probably know what Patreon is. It allows you to give us money. So please do that. Thank you. Uh, that's true. That's right. That's right. And uh, because we're doing this all for free, and uh, we give back by uh, allowing you folks to uh, give us your opinions for every $5 uh, a topic. And um, each quarter we pick a film out of uh, the spreadsheet of, of listed films that you folks have given us, and we do an episode on that movie uh, on the Dark Discussions podcast, which is uh, the father podcast of the network. Uh, now, this podcast is a spinoff of that podcast, and uh, what's that all about, Eric? Uh, this podcast or the main podcast? This one. What's this one all about? What, why are we doing this one? confusing me. Uh, this, this podcast, uh, we developed to cover movies that wouldn't fall under the Dark Discussions umbrella after the infamous fight about Mission Impossible. Uh, so, so here we convene and take turns picking the movies to talk about. Uh, we rotate amongst the hosts. Uh, and this month was Mike's pick. So we're going to talk about a movie tonight that Mike picked for us. What? Yes. I'm sorry. Did you, did you? What did you say, Eric? This what was my pick? This. This movie. This. This. I thought you said this month. Because that would be silly. Because God knows. Oh God. Yeah. This doesn't happen monthly. Uh, but we will. But we will be doing a uh, episode next month as well uh, for folks who are curious. Uh, today is January sixteenth, two thousand twenty-three. That we're recording this uh, for some of our listeners that are always interested when we record, such as Pam. Uh, this is when we're recording it, so January sixteenth, twenty twenty-three. Now, speaking of, uh, 
Uh, by, by the way, if for some reason, weird reason, you are listening to this podcast and have not listened to the Dark Discussions podcast, that podcast drops regularly. That's uh, that's we've been recording that weekly for over a decade. This is a podcast that's recorded whenever we have the extra time uh, to squeeze it in. So yes, it tends to be a little bit more regular, especially since we have a habit of doing things like oh I don't know, doing random TV show podcasts. Yes, if Phil didn't hate us and would stop doing television podcasts, we could do this monthly. Uh, yes, yes. And, uh, Mike, Mike, uh, just make sure you, uh, get a little closer to your, uh, mic, uh, so we can hear you. No pun intended, Mike and Mike. We're about as close uh, as we're going to get. Ah, uh, perfect. You second. sound great now. Excellent. I love it. All right. So, uh, speaking of, uh, Dark Discussions podcast, actually this. Is there something I can help you with? Siri, shut up. But, um, <laughs> on, a, on a, I know, what are you going to do? Uh, but, uh, no, uh, oddly this film here had this film come out. Post the beginning of this podcast here, or let me rephrase, post Doc Discussions podcast, meaning if it came out after 2011, I think, uh, we would have probably done an episode on that podcast on this film here that we're going to talk about tonight, because oddly this film could qualify for a Dark Discussions podcast, in my opinion, and I think Eric would concur. You think everything qualifies for Dark Discussions, which is why we argued and created this podcast. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. And uh, I guess we can probably get into our topic, but before we do one other thing, where you can find this podcast, you can find this podcast on www.darkdiscussions.com. You can find it also on Cinema a la Carte podcast feed, wherever podcasts are found. And it also drops in the Dark Discussions podcast feed as well, also wherever podcasts are found. So that's pretty much the house cleaning. So uh, since Mike... Uh, chose this film. Uh, Mike, uh, what are we going to discuss tonight? We're going to be discussing the, uh, I believe, 1996 uh, Terry Gilliam science fiction classic, in my opinion, called Monkeys. You're a very good observer, Cole. We have a very advanced program, something very different. An opportunity to reduce your sentence considerably and possibly play an important role in returning the human race to the surface of the Earth. No license, no prints, no warrants. But he took on five cops like he was just into the eyeballs. What year is this? What year do you think it is? 1996. That's the future, James. Do you think you're living in the future? I'm simply trying to gather information to help the people in the present trace the path of the virus. We're not in the present now. This is a place for crazy people. I'm not saying you're not mentally ill. I'm for all I know you're <laughs> crazy as a loon. The army of 12 monkeys, they're the ones who spread the virus. Monkeys. We've been living in a meticulously constructed fantasy world, and that world is starting to disintegrate. You haven't become addicted to that dying world? No, sir. He needs help. I think I'm crazy when people start dying next month. I don't belong here. You're here because of the system. I know some things that you don't know. Yes, my son. You sent me to the wrong year. You're certain of that? Science ain't an exact science. You had a bullet from World War One in your leg, James. How did it get there? I don't know. You're a trained psychiatrist. You know the difference between what's real and what's not. You said that I had delusions. You said you could explain. I'm trying to. I want the future to be enough. I can help you. Get you out. We're all monkeys. The thing mutate, we live underground. They're watching you. 
just want to do my part to get us back on top in charge of the planet. Uh, that's right. Uh, it actually came out December 29th, 1995, believe it or not. Uh, but uh, it was nominated for Academy Awards in 1996. Uh, Terry Gilliam, most uh, well known for uh, the American member of the Monty Python crew. Uh, he did all the animation, and uh, but he became a pretty uh, fine director post uh, the – well, actually, he, he was director even – during because he directed some of the Monty Python films. Uh, so he's become a well-known director. I think he just passed uh, recently. Um, and he's also known for uh, a big flop uh, of a film, too. Uh, the, the one about uh, the windmill thing, I forget what it's called. Don Quixote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was supposed to uh, be done and it ran money problems and everything. And then they made a documentary film about that, uh, which is interesting. Uh, but he's a uh, uh, well-known uh, comedian, director, and uh, nominated uh, actor slash director. Uh, the film is directed. Uh, just, just, yeah. just, just to clarify, because I, I want to once again, dark discussions has been premature in announcing someone's passing. Terry Gilliam is apparently still with us. <laughs> I was about to mention that it was. Is he? Oh, it was. It was Terry, it was Terry Jones. To kill it, that's right. It was Terry Jones, the other Terry from <laughs> yes. from, yeah. from Monty the, Python. The other not American, not animating. He was actually a Welshman too. He wasn't even an Englishman. Well, you and, see, the thing is, Mike, all Phil sees is dead people. Oh, that's a good one. I like it. <laughs> uh, so either way, uh, so he's still with us. Uh, but he, he will is, die one day. He is 82, will be 83 this year. Uh, the film uh, was written by David and Janet Peoples and based on a short film by Chris Marker called uh, Jetty. Um, and it, the rights were bought by, uh, I believe, Universal. And then uh, Terry Gilliam was able to direct the film. Uh, the film uh, stars Bruce Willis, Madeline Stowe, Brad Pitt, uh, Christopher Plummer, and then a uh, oh, oh who's the other guy? Um, oh, da, da, David Moss. David Moss. That's it. Um, the film uh, actually uh, had numerous nominations uh, at a lot of uh, I guess uh, award shows, including Brad Pitt uh, getting his first nomination for an Oscar uh, for supporting actor. Uh, the film was a box office success, a critical success, and also a success uh, with audience folk as well. Uh, the film is probably called a science fiction um, thriller, I guess. Uh, so let's uh, go around and discuss uh, how we heard about this film and what we thought about this film. And since, Mike, you actually chose this film, uh, why don't you go first? Yeah, I mean, about 1996, it's hard to say how I learned about it. Um, ad campaigns? I don't know. Uh, and, you know, at that time, Brad Pitt was just getting big. Uh, Bruce Willis had already gotten big thanks to uh, Die Hard. Um, and, uh, really, and I'd always liked Terry Gilliam, so... This was something I had to see. I did end up catching it at the local uh, discount theater uh, when, it, when it first came out. 
uh, all I had really heard about it was that uh, it apparently confused audiences, and that's what led me to, after seeing it, that led me to realize that most audiences are really stupid, because uh, <laughs> I didn't find it all that difficult to follow. Um, but then again, it's uh, I'm a science fiction nerd, and I've uh, seen plenty of time travel-ish kind of films like this, so it wasn't anything new to me. Uh, but yeah, I, I just loved the film. It was, might be probably my favorite Terry Gilliam film. I actually think it might be his most accessible film, weirdly enough, given that audiences were completely confused by it, apparently. Um, but yeah, I, I just think it's terrific. I think performances are great. Uh, I think I love how really Brad Pitt and Bruce Willis completely play against hype. Uh, and I think they both give fantastic performances. Madeline Stowe also gives great performance. Um, and it also has Frank Gorshin, which is always going to make me happy. But yeah, uh, but I, I, yeah, I just love everything about the film, art design, the music, the, the, the performances. So uh, yeah, that's, that, that's where I am with this, and I'm very happy to talk about it tonight. All right, sounds good. Uh, yeah, for me, um, yeah, I heard about it um, because at that time I, w- I was somewhat of a, a Terry Gilliam fan, uh, and uh, obviously Bruce Willis was huge at the time, and as Mike mentioned, Brad Pitt was becoming somewhat famous, and uh, Madeline Stowe was always a uh, someone that, that was uh, interesting um, as an actress and uh, as a, somewhat of a sex symbol as well. Uh, so I, I was interested in the film because of that. Uh, I did not see it at the theaters. I actually got it on VHS and, and and for my local blockbuster or independent rental store and watched it in the 90s uh, at home uh, alone in the great town of Hudson, New Hampshire. Um, and I went in blind, as I always do. Um, I also knew that a Terry Gilliam was uh, inaccessible. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say people, audiences are stupid. As Mike, I'll be a little more kind. Uh, Gilliam was always one of those directors uh, that um, was was uh, not controversial, but but um, different. And and so he was kind of weird because he was pop, but he was also art house, and he mixed it together. And so um, he, he was somewhat inaccessible to many folk who just wanted to go in to watch a fun film. But uh, with his interesting wit, um, it it may have uh, turned off some audiences. But as Mike said, I, I would concur. This is probably his most accessible film, not including uh, the ones that he did uh, as the director for the Monty Python films. Um, so uh, when I first watched the film, I was I was kind of um, disappointed back in the '90s, and that was the last time I had seen it until. Uh, last night, uh, so I hadn't seen it in 20-something years, and uh, the thing that bothered me about it when I first watched it was, like I said, some of the Terry Gilliam weirdness, like when the doctor starts singing to him, uh, Bruce Willis' character, and it was, it was just weird things uh, at the time. I feel yeah, at the time, I just didn't... Very Ill. At, at the time, it just didn't make sense to me. It was just weird. Uh, but rewatching it last night, uh, it all fits in a little better. Plus, uh, I was more prepared for uh, Terry Gilliam. 
you know, having seen the film before and already know, now knowing him for now 40 years instead of 20 or 15 years at that time. Um, and I forgot how absolutely fantastic this film was. Um, so this is the type of film, the second time I watched 20-something years later, it was like, yeah, this film is incredible, cult classic or just classic film. Uh, I'm glad Mike chose it. Uh, I forgot the twists and and is it reality or is it mental illness and all these other things that pop up. And, and it's just a great, great uh, direction, acting, screenplay, and uh, great science fiction thrower all in all. Uh, let's go view. Oh, and, and it's timely, too, a little bit. So it's kind of interesting that uh, that, I, that happened. Uh, so Mike, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, not Mike, Eric. I keep on screwing Eric. I did this to you on our 2022. Yeah, 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 you did. Uh, so Eric, uh, your thoughts and how did you hear about it? Um, you know, I, I since you were talking, I was thinking about that. I I don't think I saw this when it was a theatrical release. Um, just because that was a time in my life where I wasn't making it to the theater very often um, for various reasons. I think I probably saw this when I had my original Netflix disc subscription in the 2000s. Because um, that's when I did all actually a lot of my movie watching. Because I, I had a system. I was on a three-disc plan, and I would get my batch of three discs, and I would watch one and immediately send it back. And then uh, the next day, I watched the next one, send that back. And uh, then by the time I was watching the third one, I would have gotten the next one from the first one I sent back. And I just rotated like that constantly to take full advantage of the uh, the flow of my subscription from Netflix. You even did it during our, our early days of Dark Discussions podcast. I still had my disc description. I wasn't watching at that rate, though, at that point. Um, but during the 2000s, I was really just the last person to have the disc uh, subscription to Netflix. No, they're still going. They um, are. Yes, <laughs> at least last time I checked, um, I did have to make a, a extra effort to, to cancel it a few years ago. I think three years ago, I finally canceled the disc portion. Anywho, um, so I was just watching movie after movie after movie after movie in the 2000s. And I think that's when I finally got around to 12 Monkeys. Um, I had um, a negative attitude towards Brad Pitt for a long time because when he first hit the scene, all the girls would talk about how gorgeous he was, uh, and it made me feel insecure as a man, so I fucking hated him. Well, you know, um, well, you know what that means, right? <laughs> it means Brad Pitt's better gay. looking than I am. Totally gay. So gay. <laughs> so... Yeah, I held a grudge against Brad Pitt as being a pretty boy and dismissed his as an actor for years before I finally caught on to the fact that dude was pretty talented. Um, and he shows it in this movie. He's great in this movie, along with Bruce Willis and Madeline Stowe. Um, I think it's a good science fiction movie. Uh, I don't think I'm as in love with it as Mike, uh, but I do think it's an excellent movie, uh, and I was happy to revisit it. And when was the last time you saw it, Eric? Uh, earlier today. No, I mean, I mean, um, prior to rewatching it for this this podcast. Oh, I have no idea. Years ago. Gotcha. All right, sounds good. So, um, with that, uh, Eric, do we have a wiki or IMDb? Wiki, wiki. 
Um, it says, in a future world devastated by disease, a convict is sent back in time to gather information about the man-made virus that wiped out most of the human population on the planet. All right. Sounds good. Yeah, that that works because that's pretty much how the, the film is introduced and mm-hmm. doesn't tell us anything else, which is good. And yeah. So uh, what we do here on Cinema Arcot for folks that are new to the podcast or those that are uh, listeners uh, from the past. Uh, basically, what we do here is talk about everything and anything related to this film. Uh, as we stated, this film is a fairly old film now, which is horrendously sad for us who remember it when it first came out. Um, it is, the old uh, films are from my childhood. It's one thing. When the old films are from after I was out of college, that's something else. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sad. It really is. Next um, up are the films that that were released after I got married. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when I was watching this film, this I was I was just beginning dating. I was just beginning my career. I just bought my house, my first house when I, when I was single. Uh, it was the the good old days. But anyway, uh, yeah, it's an old film, and therefore that's why it's called the good old days. Uh, but anyway, um, this film, uh, we will talk about everything, anything, but before we do that, what we usually do, uh, even if it is an old film, just in case folks haven't seen it, uh, we do our review, in, uh, which we did, and then we'll talk about general stuff uh, for the next whatever, few minutes, whatever, uh, basically stuff about maybe Brad Pitt, about uh, this film, uh, the, the, the woods, ceremony of that time frame when, when Brad Pitt uh, actually lost uh, the category. Well, you know, anything related that isn't a spoiler. And then uh, what we do after that is we throw up a spoiler alert. And then not only did we do our prior review, but we now critique and dissect pretty much everything and anything. So spoil everything because uh, we try to determine what the writers and directors and producers were trying to say to us because film is more than entertainment. It is art. All right. So we'll talk about general stuff first. Uh, yeah, so this film uh, kind of is a little bit like Terminator. I felt when I rewatched it, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Terminator or, or oddly another Bruce Willis film, uh, Looper. And I'm not talking about the, the, the feeling, but the theme is kind of sort of a little bit. Uh, in the sense that how the characters bounce back and forth and stuff, but you're right. I mean, maybe maybe I'm, I'm just thinking it because they're both they're time travel. I was, yeah, time travel is really the only thing they have in common. Well, it's the time travel, the and influencing your future, but it's it's sort of a time travel cliche. Uh, I'll, I'll remind uh, the audiences that um, James Cameron was sued over the Terminator. Um, and if you watch the credits, there's a really it's, yes. It's because of his own fault because he came out and said where he got the idea and he didn't give the guy yeah. the credit. Yeah, well you go. Whoops, you don't say that. I'm uh, credit. And, and, and now this, he's in the poorhouse. Yeah, poor James yeah. Cameron. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, what do you expect from those Canadians? Yeah, apparently Legite was, uh, or if that's how you pronounce it, was a. Uh, they described which I haven't seen. It was described as a French a photo novel because it was really not it was images not um, moving images for the most part uh, apparently only like twenty seven minutes long but it was basically the idea of uh, this kind of a time loop of somebody seeing his own death 
Um, and you can see like connections to Terminator, I think, in that where you know him going back in time and making his own future with Kyle Reese, uh, making the future the hair. And, um, but anyway, um, yeah. So I think they do something with it. I saw uh, I was at a science fiction convention, and when this came out, and again, I. Terry Gilliam can be weird, and like movies like Brazil, somebody doesn't get it. I I, I totally fucking hate that. Brazil. <laughs> uh, I totally understand not liking Brazil. Uh, I have not watched any of Gilliam's more recent things because uh, I've not heard reviews that make me want to, to watch them. And I, I like I don't. I've seen enough directors I liked and admired just go down the crapper uh, in their later years, and I, I don't know. I just don't... I, I have enough affection for Gilliam that I don't want, want to put myself to that. So, uh, anyway. But... See, I didn't, but anyway, so I saw uh, this was at a convention. I think it was Harlan Ellison, the author. That's correct. And I don't know the context. I don't know how this came up, but he said, was anybody surprised? Was anybody here surprised to find out that was Bruce Willis? You know, in the airport, and, and nobody was. We we all got it. Now maybe it's because we're science fiction veterans. We know the tropes of the of the, of the genre. Um, but I don't understand how people were were confused by this. They even put the little thing, the 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 the, the text on the screen at the beginning of the film. I think they called the legend, which was there to try to make sure audiences knew that this was not all in the guy's head, because um, they didn't really want necessarily that debate. Um, so Even that's why that film in the third act, right? No, at the beginning. At the beginning, when it says in you know, the year whatever, two thousand and right. No, no, no. But but then they they talk about in the third act. Is it all in his head, right? Even Bruce Willis keeps on saying it. The character says, I, I, "I'm just insane." It's I, I know this is not real. No, but at the beginning, they establish that the future exists, right? That that his future is real. That the plague happened. Yes, right, right. And maybe so that they happened, added that. And, because of it should, of, the rest of it should. But, but, but maybe they added that because of test audiences. Confusion. I think they even added that. I think they may have added that before. But yeah, they didn't change a lot because of test audiences. I just finished watching it with the commentary track. Uh, apparently, it did bomb with text test audiences. And in what might be the one and only instance of this happening in film history, uh, the studio suit said, "No, no, this is a wonderful film. Don't worry about that." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that that does not happen often, you know. Um, but yeah, right, right. So whatever, it it is what it is. People get confused by it. People get confused by it. Like I said, I, I have a feeling a lot of people here uh, who might be listening to this are fans of genre films, and so they'll at least be on board. I understand this is your first ever time travel film, but for a lot of people, it shouldn't be. I, I, right. I, I'm just anyway. Well, well, and, I, and that's the thing. It's I think it's more than the time travel. Again, I think it's the quirkiness of, of Terry Gilliam. Um, so, if you're not used to his films, and and you know, as you both mentioned, Brazil, right? I haven't seen that film because I heard it was just weird. So I said, ah, I'm <laughs> it too. is weird. Yeah, so I've decided ah, I'll, I'll skip that one for now. And uh, and I know like Time Bandits. I saw a little bit of that as a kid. And I was like, eh, you know, it's whatever. But uh, I didn't just really understand it as a kid, so I didn't really care. Um, and, and you know, we just – he's just an interesting guy. I, I did see his Monty Python films, and, the, and those were hilarious, hilarious because of uh, when I got to see them as a young 20-something for the first time with my buddy uh, with all the sexual innuendo and stuff. It's hilarious. Plus, just 
for the life of Brian and uh, the the one uh, what's the other one uh, the one of uh, what have the Romans ever done the, for us? The fiction, uh, not it wasn't even Life of Brian. It was the the one with uh, uh, about life. Uh, just of about. Life. Yeah, the meaning of life. Yeah, yeah, that one, that one. Yeah. So, and then of course, of course, the uh, the uh, the the one about King Arthur. So, so the, you know, those were those were different because those are comedies. So, so you know, and it's Monty Python skits being brought to theater. Uh, but when he got into his other stuff, and most of them were science fictiony, they were just really bizarre. So I can see how this film wouldn't be. A film that a lot of people would would have got into right away, but this is probably the best film to to be introduced to Terry Gilliam, not including his Monty Python films. I think you're right on that one, Mike. Well, he did say watching this, and it's funny because he said, you know, that uh, he really respected the script, and in Hollywood, the writers tend to be treated like shit; they don't get enough respect. Um, so he really tried very hard not to. Terry Gilliam met up, and he probably and, and, and as, as watching the film, and he's like, you know, and he, and he failed at that, but you know, he tried. Uh, and I think this is probably the least quirky of his films, the least bizarre. It has moments of it, sure, but I don't think it's uh, a lot of it compared to a lot of the things that I've seen him do before. Brazil being a good example. Brazil was also uh, notoriously screwed around with by the studio. Uh, Criterion has released. Uh, a long, years ago, a, a multi-disc box set um, that contains the director's cut, which I think is a little bit more coherent. Uh, but that that could just be me. Sure, sure. Uh, um, so, uh, where does this fall into the the end of the world pandemic films? Do you think, Mike? Was that why you chose it, because of the COVIDs and all that other stuff? No, I mostly chose it because I had just purchased the uh, Arrow Video and released a uh, collector's edition. Um, I think that's kind of how I picked the last movie we did um, of mine. What was the last one I picked? Uh, Flash Gordon. Yeah, that was another one. And it was just basically an excuse of, okay, well, there's a new pristine version of it. I'm going to check it out anyway. It's a film I like. So let's, let's, let's go with that. Uh, really, that's all there was to that. Uh, nothing more or less. It's, it's, it's also a film I've been wanting to rewatch for a long time, so this gave me an excuse. Um, I, I don't know. I, it's, it's up there for me. I would need to have a list in front of me to really think. Like, where does it rank? Sure, sure. Yeah, it yeah. It really I mean, ranks highly for me for time travel films because uh, a lot of those are, you know, <laughs> art cliche. I think this one manages to overcome a lot of that personally. It's easy to make a mediocre time travel film. It's hard to make a good time travel film. Yeah. yeah I think this is really true. smart, and there's a lot of back and forth. And, like, I love how they kind of reverse the tables between the two characters at the end as to who thinks he's crazy and who's. You know who thinks the plague is really coming and who's not. What's really going on, um, and the, and the little things they do seed throughout, which you, you know they're going to pay off. You know that they all everything ends up coming around. You're going to find out how all these little things pop up 
Uh, like I said, if you're first time doing a time travel film, you may not get it. But, um, you know, there's all, all, all these little clues that are the things he's following. You'll find out the origin of everything by the time it's over. Or just about everything. Well, and yeah, it had, it had been long enough since I'd seen this movie. Um, that when I was watching today, at one point I was like, oh, that's a, that's a, that's a paradox. Um, when somebody revealed something and then. Oh, there's more than a pair. There's a paradox. Not to be, because the, as it turns out, the whole title of the movie is a red herring. Yes. Uh, yeah, Christopher is a red herring. Yes, red herrings everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's a red herring. And, and, what's that? Red Pitt's a red herring. That is true, and and the interesting is even though we're, we're probably those are all probably little spoilers, but um, the, the most interesting and this is kind of a little spoiler too, uh, the Chekhov's actor uh, David Morse uh, that was that was a big check uh, a big um, Chekhov I felt because to have uh, a pretty famous actor in a, a small role at the very beginning of the film and talk about all these strange things. And we're talking about a guy that was like, you know, like everybody's favorite actor that watched Saint Elsewhere for years, you know, uh, including my mother would even knew who he was just by, oh, that's David Moss, you know. So um, I have to look him up every time I watch this movie because, like, I recognize the face, but in that red wig, it's just like. What? Wow! <laughs> My brain. Right, yeah, he has he has that distinct voice though too. You know, <laughs> you, you can hear you, it's a cool voice. So if you you look away, you can oh that's David Moore. David Moore. Yeah, it throws me off every time. No, I'm just like who the fuck is that? I know who that is. Who is it? And then I look at it, I'm like oh yeah, it's him. Right, right. Mike, you were about to say something? Uh, no, but I, I think part of it is that he cast people. Um. Specifically for that, right? For you know, making it unclear as to who the final villain would be. Mm-hmm. You know, and he actually said the thing with Christopher Plummer. Part of it is that he's he's a part of the quest, so you want it to be something satisfying when you when you get to that stage of the quest. Um, you know, sure, we're, sure. We're putting in video game parlance. When you get to the end of the level, you want a good boss. Oh, yeah. Here's Christopher well, Plummer. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And, uh, it, yeah, it is interesting, uh, that, um, Morris's character, the, the, the two, well, he's in this, the movie three times. And one time, it's the connection. That's the middle one. But the first and the third time, he is so nuts and evil it's like you just know this guy is bad news and and not necessarily evil in the sense that he's evil but he's completely insane he's like a cluster b a true cluster b no not i don't know what's going on in his his head and no whether it's morse that played it that way or it was written that way and then he just made a great sociopath or whatever the hell you want to call him it, it's, it's just what it's fantastic. <laughs> I was about to say, Phil, you know, you, whether you actually say sociopath or just say con- cluster B constantly, we're still yeah. going to make fun of you for saying it constantly. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And his character is used. We know what you mean. But but either way, this is the type. He's the type of villain that 
creeps me out or makes me go, you know, whether it's him sure. or, or Anton Chigurh from No Country from Old Man or, you know, various others that we've, we've talked about. He, those are the type. Those are the type. And he's one of those so types. The type that don't think they're doing anything wrong. Right. They have this weird logic. And yet they know, they probably know there's something wrong in their head, but it doesn't matter to them because they're going, they, they think what they're doing is, is just normal logic, even if, yeah, it's just nuts. It's it's just creepy, and those people do exist, and that's that's the frightening thing about it. Um, maybe on this podcast, <laughs> maybe so, maybe so. Well, Bar- well, Barrett's not on this one, so I think we're oh, hopefully he doesn't listen. I was that kidding, himself. That's low. I know. Well, oh, you always blame Abe. Remember, it's always yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, those are but he's dead now, so we can't do that anymore. <laughs> That's knock on wood. That's not true. Uh, but he's dead to us. It's the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, let's see what else we want to discuss. Um, yeah, the title is just a strange title too. So I mean, that I could make it could be something that people go, "What the heck?" You know. And and I've always not liked monkeys. Like Mike loves monkeys, as we know from monkey movies that he always talks about. But monkeys, they, they, I like they, the they just. I just have this weird phobia of monkeys. They're like dirty or something. Because I always, when I was a kid, you know, they used to throw poop, their own poop. And so it was like, anything with poop in bodily functions, as Eric knows, just makes me disgusted. So I've never liked monkeys. Because so unless you're like, you're putting it in a locker. No, no, no. No, a desk. A desk. You got to do it to, yeah, you got to get vengeance. Always, Mike, absolutely. So that's fair. But, um, for this stuff here, yeah, it's, uh, it's a weird title. So maybe, maybe the title's not weird and it was just me that felt it was weird because I don't like monkeys. Um, but, I don't know. Anyway, uh, I like the title because it's a title that, um, not because it's it's a title that mentions monkeys, but I I just like it because it's a thing that I hear and I kind of go what what the hell is that you know right. what, what's that about yeah yeah it's evocative it's not like it's not like there's some some movie titles where it's just terrible and it just makes no sense because this makes sense within the context of the movie but it, it's and it doesn't it's not some long weird thing that's uh, like the unbearable weight of massive talent that just sounds pretentious. Um, <laughs> No, I, I like that title because it's that's part of the joke. Um, but yeah, so uh, that kind of just pulls me in, it gets my attention, which is what a, a good title should do. Yeah, it, it was a pretty go- good golden age of science fiction films in that era too, because I know horror, you know, Scream was a, was a monster film that came out in '96, and then um, there was all these um, uh, other horror films that were, were just considered clones or, or, or weaker slashers or whatever, but for science well, fiction with the Matrix and, and, and this one here and, and about, yeah, you were going to say something. Or, I was just going to say that I think, I think science yeah, the same, that's what I'm saying, the 1990s, Mike. Anyway, cut, cut, I was going to say that I think science fiction films were actually better before they started relying so heavily on uh, computer graphics um, because b- before that, you really had to stop and think about what you were representing and how you were going to represent it. Um, you know, what was your, if it's an alien movie, what's your alien going to look like? How are you going to accomplish that? Uh, time travel. How are they going to time travel? What's that going to look like? Um, 
And I think uh, it forced people making those movies to be a little more creative and put a little more thought into the, what they were doing. Um, Cause these days you can just spend a shit ton of money and slap a spectacle on the screen and have it mean nothing. Um, like what the, what was that piece of shit on Amazon with what's his fuck? We watched it a couple of years ago. Um, dinosaur trainer guy. Oh, uh, tomorrow war, right? Yeah. Forever. Yeah. That Forever meant gun. nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, that was, that was just flashing like, shit on on a screen, and it meant nothing. But in to fairness, me. the mid nineties also gave us Independence Day, right? Which was another like kind of mindless yeah. Yeah, uh, spectacle funny. kind of film. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you know, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't all golden age. That's fair. No, and you know, I think there were some in the nineties. I think uh, Pi came out then. Uh, Dark City came out. Uh, I remember Strange Days, which I liked a lot. I don't think that aged very well because oh, it was, a, you know, well, it was a pretty good film. That one I haven't seen. Oh, that's really uh, but, there, but there were yeah. some, but they required, you know. I, I, but I think that that stays true is you have to have um, a good script, and you know the, and then if you have great effects, that's that's fine. But you have to have the story first, and unfortunately, the way they make movies now is way too many of them. Uh, have a an appointment that they have to keep. Uh, right. They have a schedule on the calendar, and then uh, you know they just start filming, even if the script isn't done, and we'll fix it in post, or we'll go back and do reshoots, and just rush to meet that you know that Labor Day weekend release date. Um, I mean, but they certainly were making a lot of shitty films before then. So, but I do think in general that the, the art of screenwriting has gotten um, gotten a beating, and I don't don't try to say that as someone who's just looking at things with nostalgia goggles, um, I think it, there's a reason why the smaller films, mostly studio films, right? Because those are the ones that have the budgets. Those are the ones that have to meet a deadline. If you're making They're also the ones that can't come up with an original idea to save their fucking life. Well, I mean... This prequel, sequel, prequel. Reimagining. Re- right. Re-booting. Well, and, you know, if you... Uh, if you want to complain about that, and by which I'm talking to the general audience, not specifically you, Eric, it's then make sure you pay to see the original films and don't go to see those those uh, sequel films so much. But audiences continue to do it. And that's also part of the problem is when you're making something for now global audiences and you're putting in, you know, 200, 300 million dollars into it, you're not taking a gamble on an unknown uh, property, right? So well, you want something that's sure fire. And to, and to be fair, uh, writers are as much guilty of that as anyone else, uh, no matter who, who the writers are, Patterson, uh, Jonathan Mayberry, uh, on and on and on. You just name They write series now, right? Everybody writes series because they sell. You know, Harry Potter is another example. So, so and even even King did with, the, with his. So what it is is I, I don't think it's all – on originality, I also think it's partly um, the fans like those characters and want to see them again. Now, I'm not a fan of that. I'm like more like Eric, so I don't read book series. If it's if there's a series of books, I don't even bother reading them because you already know certain characters aren't going to die, and it's like I don't give a rat's ass. I just want to stand alone and I'm done. However, I do like I do like. Sure, but I do like characters a lot, though. Where oh, I want to see them again. So yeah, like you know, I, I wouldn't mind seeing 
a Queen of the North or Jon Snow or these spinoffs that could happen from Game of Thrones because I like those characters. So I'm, I'm guilty as well, just in certain aspects. So some of it's laziness. Some of it may be uh, legit, but I see. I, I do understand Eric's point. Uh, no, and I also understand the box office aspect of everything that Mike is referring to. Uh but I would counter that by saying maybe the problem is that you are spending $300 million on a movie. <laughs> maybe you should, you know, follow the Blum model and cut it back to five and see what they yeah. can do. Yeah. And I always bring up, I always bring up uh, Riddick, that film, you remember? And I always bring that up saying that film was made in like in $35 million and it looked like a $200 million film. I felt with all the special effects and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that was a great film. I thought, or, or at least a fun film. So, it can be done that you can make a really cool looking film and still latest one is everything everywhere all at once. Yeah, there you go. Did not have a uh, huge budget on that movie, but it looks phenomenal. Yeah, there you go. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, I've heard other people say the same. Uh, Mike, you going to say something? Well, I was also say it depends on what it is. I've always said, you know, we are a storytelling species. We like stories. We enjoy stories. And when we get attached to characters, we want more of them. And that's the reason why Hercules had 12 labors, right? You know, they said, oh, if you like the Hercules story, let me tell you about Theseus. Uh, boo! More Hercules. All right, fine. <laughs> Here's more yep, Hercules. Yep. Um, so, like, I don't think you need 12 Monkeys too. You don't need everything. Even though they did, they, made a, they again. made a TV series, Mike. They made a TV series. Well, monkeys. I know they did. And, and it, but, but at least the TV series, which has gotten good reviews, is taking the same idea. It's like a remake. It's taking it and it's expanding it and going more into the story. And I could see where you might be able to expand this. I could also see where it might have been a waste of time. But, you know, it's like um, I always want to hold off judgment on any of these things until I see what someone has done. Because I remember when people, like, dismissed the, you know, remaking movies like The Fly or The Blob or Invasion of the Body Snatchers or, or The Thing. Um, and certainly people who uh, looked askance at the uh, – at um, oh, I can't remember the, the – the, the creator's name, but the guy who did the, uh, uh, the, the TV adaptation of Fargo, which, which was fantastic. Um, it's really, sometimes Shit, I still got to catch up with that. Yeah. So you, you can be surprised by a lot of these things. Um, so I always want to give them the benefit of the doubt, you know, not prejudge. So oh, it's going to suck. And there's a good chance it will suck because a lot of the stuff that they make tends to suck, but you never know when they're actually going to have a, a halfway decent idea. Um, as a way to no, that's true, and I. And it's not like I don't watch these movies. I do. It's just that, unfortunately, the majority of them aren't great. And you know, I I saw a film last night, which is in theaters in uh, January of 2023, which is a horror movie that's doing very well and probably will have a sequel. But at the same time, I could see where it will have a sequel because it's kind of set up to have a sequel. So. You know, that works, too. And sequels are kind of the bread and butter of the horror community. Uh, For this film here, um, basically what we got is, um, as Eric mentioned, uh, the future thing. All these people have died. And um, it's kind of like a dictatorship. Uh, They live underground. And they have to go out every so often, these, these prisoners type and they have to find uh life forms that they can bring back uh for some reason because outside 
on the top of the earth. Uh, at this point in the story, it's wintertime and the uh, animals have taken over uh, the world, I guess, uh, because they're not affected by this disease. And the rumor is, is that the disease was man-made and set up intentionally. And somehow they have time travel tools in this world where they can send people back. Uh, it's not explained as well as, say, Terminator. I don't think they even explained it at all. And you just are understood that they have some sort of time travel thing that allows them to send people back in time. And they want to find out um, – or prevent, or, or or get a sample or something, um, or, or the papers from the people who created this virus, so they could um, basically cure it and get rid of it. Am I right? Is that, right. that pretty much the sum? Yeah, yeah. They're they're yeah, trying to make it so it. they can go back to the surface and not die. Yeah, they don't yeah. really tell us a lot about the world that that they're in, uh, right. because we're seeing it from the perspective of. Cole, Bruce Willis's character, who was a prisoner, and they're using prisoners to do to do these missions. Um, Prison so, labor, time honored tradition. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, and you know, on basically potentially suicide missions, um, we don't really know like what the average person's life is like. It's probably not good. You know, they are living in underground cities, but it's out of necessity. Um, because of the virus, um, you know, five billion people have died, and this is back when five billion people would have been a lot because this is uh, we, we didn't have an eight billion person population back then; it was only six something. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, um, that would have been you know eighty percent of the world had died by that point. Um, so yeah, right. Yeah. So uh, that's. Uh kind of the, the setup of, of the world anyway. Um, and and we learn pretty quick that Bruce Lewis is the prisoner, among a couple of others, uh, some guy named Juan, I think, or Julio, something I can't remember, um, are, are sent back into time. And unfortunately, their time travel uh, doesn't, doesn't work uh, as well as they hope, because they send people to the wrong times often, it, it seems. Yeah, and, and not just that often, uh, not not just a few years off, but sometimes hundreds and hundreds of years off or decades off. Um, though, though by the time this movie starts, most of the time they get it pretty close, if not right on point. You know, I'm I'm glad that they they include that in the movie because. Uh, like most time travel movies don't don't cover the the R and D phase, right? <laughs> it's just we have time travel and it works. Uh, they, they don't show you the the bumps they might have had to get over to get time travel. Uh, like, oops, we set them back to World War One. Yeah, and you right. don't get like yeah they don't talk about the error bars. You know, they keep, it's we, we're gonna it's like Back to the Future. I can send you back to precisely, you know. Uh -huh. uh, this time on whatever November sixth, nineteen fifty five, whatever that date was. Um, right. Nope, you know here it's like we're 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 doing our best. We're going to get you somewhere in and around there. Right, right. Yep. Um, and unfortunately, they don't prepare their their folks either. So when they land 
up in the past, uh, they appear to be insane or mentally behavioral health individuals because they were not prepared by the people in the, the new present, which is 2035 or 36, I think, that's basically, okay, th- there's cars and there's this and there's this. You got to watch out for that. You know, they don't. And so they kind of like Bruce Willis's character is a true fish out of water when, when he goes back. Um, I would like to note that at one point in this movie, Bruce Willis runs into a bear who goes away and yes. leaves alone because bears are not evil. They just want to be left alone. I, I almost oh, texted but you. they're not on cocaine. <laughs> I almost texted you, Eric, when, when that scene popped up. I almost texted you. But I said, I'll let it go. I'll let it go. Uh, uh, but, um, yeah, that, that was one thing that, that really bothered me of this film, even though it just sounds silly, is that the lion, there was a lion and these other animals that has been released from jails and, and stuff. Not jails, um, um, experimental places and zoos and the, the lion could survive easily in Philadelphia during the middle of the winter. I, I don't think that's possible, but, but oh, there uh, would have been plenty of human bodies around. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess. Well, I'm just thinking it's like tropical, certain tropical animals automatically just die in the winter. So I was thinking that I don't think a, a lion could, could make it that long in winter food or uh, not. Some, but, some animals will surprise you. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. There, there have been like large uh, cats that have survived for a long time in England, uh, out in the wild. What type of cats? Large Large cats. I I can't speak to specific species. Um, And certainly tigers can be adapted. I mean, it all depends. Like, is an Asiatic lion? You know what? uh, Well, there's no Asiatic lion. There's tigers. Asiatic tigers. And you know, someone once said, "Phil, life will find a way." Right, that's true, Jeff Goldblum. I don't think there are Asian lions. There's Asian tigers. You should definitely spend time arguing about that. Yeah, yeah, it's not important. Because it's important. Anyway, yeah, that, that, no, uh, <laughs> at least not to this one. Uh, it is an interesting topic, though. Um, so uh, what do we want to talk about? Uh, any other non-spoilery stuff that we want to bring up uh, before we get into the next section of the podcast? Oh, I was just going to say the uh, actor who was... Uh the character was Jose. Was played by John Cena, who is a character. Oh, well, that was him, huh? And I, yeah, I know him best for, I, because I, uh, I from uh, the TV series Homicide, uh, which he was a character in the later seasons. Uh, but he's been in a lot of other things since then. Actually, a lot of the actors, a number of the actors here, have been in were in Homicide or uh, in Oz, and which shared like a creative team. Uh, right. So I imagine that has to be the casting director. Yeah, yeah, it's probably true, probably true. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, also, uh, um, let's see, uh, yeah, David Moss was ER, so he had a connection to TV, too, so maybe he had something to do with it. And then, uh, David Morse, I think, was in Oz also. So it's, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, there Chris you go. Maloney was in Oz, uh, like where he, I think, first might have broken big first. I uh, played with the detectives right. in this. Yeah, okay. So there you go. Yeah. So there's probably probably same casting directors. Wouldn't surprise me. Uh anything else anybody want to bring up that is non spoiler before we throw up the spoiler alert. Okay, right. I guess we'll throw up the spoiler alert. So uh at this point we will talk about everything and anything. So if you have not seen Twelve Monkeys, which does have a lot of twists and turns, uh we are going to spoil those. 
but again, uh, it's the only way we can really talk about it if we want to talk about uh, all the interesting aspects uh, of the theme and, and the story and whatnot. So uh, at this point, we're going to throw up the spoiler, and now we are in the spoiler part of the podcast. So uh, who wants to begin? Where do we want to go? Anyone? Anyone? Mike? You picked the phone. Mike? Yeah, so I let's start with this. This is a thing that uh, you'll even point out. The movie starts with us in the future and uh, Bruce Willis wandering around uh, outside uh, in, this, in Philadelphia above, um, above ground, uh, dressed in a like translucent suit. And the whole uh, reason he was in this like clear plastic suit is that as hard as it may be, for people to think of it in these terms. Back then, people were very concerned with plague and disease um, and infection, and the reason was because of the AIDS crisis. And the way to prevent that, of course, as we all know, if you went to school in the 1980s and 1990s, was to wear a condom. So Terry Gilliam just had this idea to have everybody wearing basically body condoms as a way to prevent disease. I'm sure if they made this now, it would be all about masks um, instead of uh, instead of body condoms. But, right. Well, uh, well it, it kind of reminded me of, of biohazard suits in the sense that were just yeah. yellow or orange. Right. But this is the, that's the reason he went with making them completely clear, was to evoke, a, evoke condoms. <laughs> and that that's the Gilliam way. Um, that just make it a little bit visually interesting, a little bit askew. Um, but, yeah, so this is where you, you start to see the animals that have survived. Um and now, and again, there's the question of where the hell did these animals come from? Uh, how did they end up in um, in Philadelphia? And why are they why are they there? And, and how does this tie into there being a disease? Because sure, uh, if you've seen uh, what is it, I Am Legend, right? I mean, there's this, there's uh, scenes of animals running through New York City, but they were animals that are native to northeastern. United States and you know lions and uh, and whatnot or not, uh, but and that all gets into that thing. But the, the, the film is filled with little cues at this point that you will pay off later, uh, such as the the writing on the wall about the uh, is this where it all started? Is this where five billion people die? <laughs> or is this what causes five billion people to die? And we find out the origin of that, uh, which is uh, spray painted on the wall. We will get the uh, origin of that later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot of little things that call back to earlier things in this film, which which are really, really good, actually. Uh, uh, I forgot an all about them. And, and so when they call back to writing on the wall or mysterious phone calls or, or whatever, it's like, oh, wow, that's pretty awesome. Um, really good script. Um, so, yeah, so Bruce Willis is... Uh, uh, told to that he's going back to the past to try to find out the origin of the plague, I guess, and whatnot. And um, they believe, like you said, Mike, it was either Philadelphia or Baltimore, right? So I think the uh, first... I, it was mostly set in Philadelphia, I think. Yeah, yeah, the film was was filmed both in Baltimore and Philly. Um, but I think the first part, the first 1990, when they sent them back to 1990, so six years too early, 
that's Baltimore. Um, because as we know, she has to later on, meaning Madeline Stowe's character has to drive a hundred miles to Philly. And, um, that's because she's in Baltimore. And, um, and this is also where Bruce Willis comes back from the future or the past, I should say to the future and says, all right, yeah, it's not Baltimore. It, it, it started in Philly. And that's when they send him back a second time and he lands up in Philly. And that's when they do their research in Philly, um, where, where he, he gets Madeline Stowe's character and they drive the hundred miles to Philly from Baltimore. Um, so that's my understanding. Mike. So you're right. The right. Most of the film takes place in, Philadelphia, except for the insane asylum, which I'm pretty sure is supposed to be just Baltimore. Uh, actually, he... an insane asylum in uh, is actually uh, in a uh, what do you call it? A penitentiary. It's the nation's first penitentiary, which was built in Philly. I've been there. Uh, oh, nice. Operating uh, until relatively recently, it's built in like the 1790s, and the point of it was to be a penitentiary. Um, we went uh, and basically meaning that it was a place for people to go and contemplate their sins and to rediscover God, uh, you know, a place to be penitent, um, which is where it gets the name penitentiary was not meant as a prison. And uh, for some reason, locking people up in solitary with nothing but their thoughts um, tended to have a very high suicide rate. Go figure. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Bendlam. Oh uh, yeah, uh, like but it was, was but it was money. operating at least up until the twenties or thirties because Al Capone was was kept there for for a time too. Um, yeah. I do. I, let me just uh, clarify before we continue. Like, uh, yeah, so so even though that w- was filmed in that penitentiary, uh, yeah, the nineteen ninety incident all takes place in Baltimore. It says here. Okay, so I was right. I, I didn't mistake that. So anyway, continue, Mike. So yeah. So anyway, so that was there, and this, and uh, yeah, so they find. Bruce Willis, who has, uh, this is our introduction to the character, uh, that's the character to, uh, the time travel aspect, but it's our introduction to, uh, Madeline Stowe, who is a, uh, young psychiatrist at this point. Um, uh, and she's pulled in. There's this guy who apparently roughed up a couple of cops in trying to pull him in. And, uh, she finds Bruce Willis wearing nothing but a, uh, which like a like the raincoat from Blade Runner it was just like a tra- a woman transparent woman's raincoat, uh, and that was uh, chosen because it was supposed to resemble the uh, the safety suits that he would have worn in the future. So, it made, but he's his brain had gotten scrambled from the time travel, and um, he's kept in lockup for at least a couple of days, if not weeks, um, with Brad Pitt, who is uh, the crazy son of a biochemist, and. Um, yeah, and, and that's that's what introduces us to to that character. And uh, Bruce Willis realizes he's he's arrived at the wrong time, and people can't understand his story because he's saying he's supposed to be 1996, and oh, so you think 1996 is present? No, that's the past too. You know, it's uh, it's kind of a little bit humorous confusion. But what I like really like about Bruce Willis's performance is that he's not being Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis uh, is a guy that made his bones originally as a in a one hour in moonlighting right it was a one hour romantic comedy tv series and he was the the the, the funny quippy sarcastic character and and i remember when die hard came out 
People are like, oh, that? I don't, I, I, they didn't the want to be with him in it because, as, because he's not an action star. And then he becomes the action star, and, you know, he's the, and even then he's still kind of, you know, got the one liners because it's still an 80s action movie. And here he is literally stripped naked, you know, physically, but also emotionally. He's a very, like, confused character. He, he is not funny in this movie at all, or, and not intentionally anyway. Um, he does not, I don't think, crack a single joke. Um, and he's basically, you know, just alternating between paranoid, confused, uh, and in some cases just absolutely, um, you know, delighted to be living, like, but has like this sense of childlike wonder of being able to be back, uh, back in the, the real world, um, and being able to do things like see sky, you know, mm-hmm. and see animals because he's well, and apparently at this point in his career, Bruce Willis was looking to, uh, be taken more seriously as an actor. Um, so I believe he actually approached Terry Gilliam. Um, I watched part of an interview uh, with Terry Gilliam earlier today, and he was saying that um, he was willing to give Bruce Willis a shot, but in order to do so, if he really wanted to do the actor thing, um, I guess at the time he was notorious for having a huge entourage <laughs> that went with him everywhere. Um, and And he was like, if you want to do this, that's not going to happen on, on, on the set. <laughs> he's, he's like, you're going you're gonna to have a driver and you're going to have a bodyguard. And that's it. <laughs> and uh, he went along with it because he wanted, he wanted the chance. Uh, ended up working out well for everybody. Now, and I've never met Bruce Willis. Uh, I don't know anybody who has met Bruce Willis. I don't know anyone who's worked with Bruce Willis. But I've heard, certainly heard stories about Bruce Willis uh, in more recent years, and by which I mean before the... Uh, of his, uh, his or, yeah. or whatever he's, he's suffering from, but I've not heard the best things about him. Yeah, uh, on, you know that he's just like doesn't quite give a shit about what he's doing. Um, that it, so I don't know what he's like now, but uh, but listening to this uh, uh, commentary with Terry Gilliam, he he thought the world of him. He thought he was uh, a very Giving actor uh, in terms of very open to, to, very, to working together and didn't have much of an ego. Now that may have just been the relationship they had. Who knows what he was like to with the rest of the people on set? You know, um, if this was a one-time thing, or if he's going to become more of an asshole later, or if, for that matter, uh, the people who say he's an asshole are are, are also full of shit. I have no idea. Um, but. Yeah, he, he really had to do something completely different. He had to put his trust into Gilliam. They apparently had met together when Gilliam was doing The Fisher King, uh, so uh, which eventually, I guess, the role probably went to, uh, I think it was Jeff Bridges. Uh, or Robin Williams. I don't imagine he was up for the Robin Williams role. Uh, but yeah, so I think, he, I think he does a fantastic job here. This may be my favorite performance of his because it is so different. And the flip side of that, is that while he's, you know, a guy known for being uh, this funny actor uh, with a lot of personality and, and very colorful, uh, Brad Pitt at the time, you know, was basically maybe best known for um, one was the movie Legends of the Fall, which I remember going uh, out on with uh, an uncomfortable date, uh, and uh, he had done an interview with a vampire, both of which required him to be fairly stoic, and he had just. 
uh, been named like People's Magazine's sexiest man or one of the ten sexiest men in the world. And his, apparently his attitude, again, according to Gillian, was like, you know, no, 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 no. Uh, and so he like made sure he went with a completely different oh, look River, his film. River runs uh, through it too, right? That was another big River one. runs through it was another one. Yeah. I saw that one with my father. Um, and so, yeah, he, want, he wanted anything but that. And so apparently he did his own hair uh, with scissors. <laughs> he, you know, he was, I think the, the, the eyes were might have been his idea. So he's wearing contact lenses. So that yeah, he has, yeah, brown eyes. Uh, so his brown pushing. eyes, and one of them is a lazy eye. That lazy. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, and he is he is a completely frantic. I guess maybe is the word I'm looking for. <laughs> performance. I was I was reading the trivia section on IMDb earlier, and according to that, uh, the way Terry Terry Gilliam got Brad Pitt to finally like nail the part the way he wanted to wanted him to. Was he took away his cigarettes? <laughs> so he'd just be like freaking out from from nicotine withdrawal. <laughs> whatever works, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, whatever works. And I, I'm guessing he gave him the Frank Gorshin. Um, plays uh, later on, and we'll see him as a doctor in the hospital. Uh, which I thought was fun, nice to see Frank Gorshin. For some reason, you don't know him. Um, was a comedic actor from the early days, from the 50s and 60s. He was well-known for doing impressions. Uh, but most audiences of a certain age will best remember him for playing the Riddler on Batman or the uh, black-and-white cookie alien from the original Star Trek series. Uh, and he was originally up to play the um, the, uh, the the desk clerk in the hotel at the end of the film. And then when like they, they realize it's Frank Gorshin, they're like, no, 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 we, we can find something better for you, a bigger role for you than this, than just the the guy that checks them in. So, uh, so I, I thought I always just liked seeing him in that. That's ended up being one of his final roles. But uh, I, he's sitting there at the the panel discussing Bruce Willis's character. He's got a cigarette in hand or in mouth the entire time. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. You know, it's and, and by the way, I think well, it was the '90s. No, no, even in the '90s, that would have been a weird. That was a weird thing. That was a joke. You know, and the, the yeah, 50s, it was a little unprofessional. Yeah. Oh yeah, in the '50s, that wouldn't have been a joke. That would have been oh, that that was the time. This this was a very much a uh, a thing that you wouldn't have seen back then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's true. And, and also, uh, I, I did like uh, it was timely because they had beepers. Right. That's that's how Madeline Stowe's character yep. uh, would go back. To, be notified that she had to be get back to the um, uh, sanitarium. Fucking beepers, man! What a horrible idea. Yeah, yeah. My first one of my first jobs I, I, when I was on call uh, at night because once, once, uh, what was it? Every every one month a year, I had to I had to be on call for, at night just in case the computers went down. It was crazy. I don't even know why why they didn't have people that just did that job. You know, but it is what it is. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, so the whole Baltimore part and the sanitarium part, they just think he's nuts. Um, and then he escapes, but he really doesn't. They, he just gets sent. They, they pull the, the, yeah, they pull the plug on him and he, he gets sent back to the, the future slash present. Um, and I, I, I did like, 
I know, right? Uh, I'm glad they they always had no one around when he disappeared because if they had someone see it, then you would know they would obviously explain that something's fishy going on here. But they just assume. Well, it also removes the possibility that he's batshit crazy. Yes, yes, that's true. Yeah, I like how to use some of the, the stuff there with the, the TV. If you listen, there's a lot of the, the ramblings of. Um, uh, of Brad Pitt's character, like one of the things he said that I wrote this down was um, this guy. Uh, it's when they talk because you're in the community room in the insane asylum. Uh, this guy always requests shows that have already played, which is you know tying into the whole time loop kind of idea. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I just like when you first meet Bruce Willis, he is chained up and hunched over like a monkey, um, which I thought was. Um, it's been a while since I wrote these notes down because let me see. This is uh, early in my notebook. Let me see. What's the very next page after that? Oh, episode one of season four of uh, of Westworld. So uh, yeah, <laughs> it's just a while ago. <laughs> yeah, we we were going to do this and then got interrupted by something, and uh, that's why Phil. we're watching today with the commentary track. Um, it's always Phil. I don't even know what you guys are talking about. <laughs> uh, uh, right. <laughs> I don't know nothing. <laughs> anyway, yeah, how could I? You how could I save you? Cancel recording happened. session we had scheduled to do this months ago. Yeah, well, that never well, happened. No. Well, well, well. I'm, I'm, I may have to ask 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 us to. Speaking of, of recording issues, uh, I may have to uh, ask you guys if we could flip flop our next two movies for dark discussions, uh, since we're going to do them anyway. Just flip flop the weeks. If that, if that was possible, but we'll we'll talk about that. Yeah. Okay, that I don't understand why it matters, but whatever. Uh, because I don't know if I'm going to be able to get to see that film that Mike saw last night. It, um, it might be gone. No, it won't. No, but it's yeah, yeah. It's, I think it'll, it'll still be there next week. But anyway, we'll talk about that after end of this episode. But um, so uh, and by the way, uh, you suck. I, all right, well. <laughs> anyway, um, back to this movie here. Um, yeah, I mean, Bruce Willis is—it's—it's crazy how out of character he—he he is in this film because he—he's—he fit. You feel sorry for him. He, he, I mean, he's very all messed up mentally. He—he he doesn't know what's true anymore. He, I mean, the, the prison—it's a—it's a remarkable performance, if you ask me, because he really does play the role. And again, looking over his. His career, it, it, it just it's completely different than anything he, he's done usually. So it's just remarkable. Um, the Brad Pitt, um, I, I mean, I've seen him be manic in other films too, from from uh, True Romance and Snatch. Uh, so so I, I have seen him do roles a little bit like this, even though this one's completely insane. Um, and even California for that matter and whatnot. But this one here, Bruce Willis is, is it's yeah. I, I mean, I'm waiting for Bruce Willis to be Bruce Willis and he never turns into Bruce Willis. And it's like, that's remarkable. Right. He does like, have an action yeah. hero moment in the film, but it is not, you know, um, it is not a uh, John McClane action hero moment. It is a rather brutal, uh, takedown of, of two two criminals or homeless people. Or yeah, like yeah, that. that's true. That's true. But but when I think of Bruce Willis, yeah, I mean Die Hard, but but I, I just remember him in Lupa when, when he had the M 
uh, M96 or whatever the, the, the M911, M911 machine gun. He's just wiping out everybody. It's like, yeah, that's Bruce Willis. But yeah, you're right. Um, he does take out those two guys and, um, yeah, they, they, he should have killed the second one, to be honest, but he did kill, kill the, the real bad one, the, the one that was going to rape, uh, Madeline Stowe's character. And, um, it was a disturbing scene. It was a disturbing scene. Um, so this is when he comes back the second time because he comes back three times, right? Because the first time is the insane asylum. He gets arrested immediately and, and gets locked up. The second one is when he kidnaps her in Baltimore and they drive 100 miles to Philly and they do all this stuff in Philly. And then the third time he comes back is when she's on board and believes everything he said, and he comes back, and he doesn't even believe it anymore, and he thinks it was all in his head, and he's been in the 1996 the entire time. Well, that's, that's I think, a, love, a nice twist to this, is that he wants to be crazy. Right. Because if he's, if he's crazy, then five billion people don't die, the world doesn't end. Right. He doesn't have to live yep. underground. He's not going back to a future, you know, yep. where his reward is is yeah where his reward is uh is people badly singing uh blueberry hill to him um so yeah it may, it makes perfect sense he doesn't he and, and of course Madeline Stowe doesn't want to believe him because it's it's fucking crazy um right and plus she's, she's, she's dead she's and then she's dead in 3 months from now from the presumably the yeah. yeah right so she doesn't want to believe no yeah and, and and there's no reason to believe him. I mean, he's completely it sounds completely insane. I mean, he sounds as insane as as the uh, the the black guy that comes up to him at, at the insane asylum, and he's wearing you know bunny slippers, but he talks completely sane, even though what he's saying is completely insane. You know, and, and it's like well, and that's just, one of the things I liked about the scene where he was trying to explain to the doctors what was going on. Yeah, is because. Uh, it would have been really easy um, to do that scene over the top, right, uh, and have him, like, acting like an insane person trying to explain this um, to the doctors, but he doesn't. He's not, like, he, he doesn't sound like a crazy person trying to explain something. He just sounds like somebody trying to explain something that doesn't make any sense, um, and I appreciate that. Well, if somebody doesn't necessarily... Yeah, his 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 brain is a bit affected by the time travel, and he's they, they're not sending back their scientist, right? They're sending back a guy who was a purportedly a violent criminal. Maybe he doesn't have the greatest grasp on what was going on anyway. Uh, since he was, we do see him uh, through flashbacks as a child that he was what maybe eight nine years old. Um, so, you know, and and the world collapses around him. So I'm guessing he didn't quite get his education finished. Uh, so, yeah, he doesn't have the ability to maybe describe what was going on very well, even under the best of circumstances. And then you throw in the fact that you know that um, that, he, that his brain is kind of messed up. Well, and plus, plus, you know, the trauma of, of seeing assassination or violence like he did in the airport as a child that, that can cause trauma and stuff. So. Um. Yeah, yeah. He 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 was screwed up 
right from the beginning, I think. Um, and he somehow su- survived the pandemic or whatever it's called. And, and it is a pandemic uh, because it's 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 pan means the whole world, right? Like we see in, in Last of Us. Um, and and so he is all messed up. You're right. And then who knows what torture he had to do in the post-apocalypse world where he was. It appears he may have not been, you know, a leader. His character, right, or or, or a guy that. Could could keep his sanity. Uh, oh yeah, I mean, because the know. odds are that they didn't have they didn't have these underground cities ready to go just in case there was a global pandemic. Exactly. Wink, wink, yep. nudge, nudge. Um, yep. So yeah, so who knows what what life was like for this you know this eight ten year old kid. Um. Yeah. So like I said, so yeah, he's not the best messenger. Oh yeah, that, yeah. That I mean, explains. I mean, why he can't, you know, go there and clear them. Not that they would believe him if, like, this was Marty McFly in Back to the Future. He would still yeah. probably be in an insane asylum as long as he stuck to his story. But you would have, but, you know, Marty McFly was smart enough not to tell people the story unless, you know, there was somebody that could believe it. Right. Um, and also, his, at, least, not. at least his story is, Marty McFly's story is he just got sent back to the future on mistake. While this guy's getting sent back to not to try to find because of a biological event that when he tries to tell people and warn them, they're, they're just think he's insane. Like, no, five billion people are not going to die in two months from now or in six years from now or whatever time frame that he's sent back. And and so he just sounds like the same guy at the mental institution that would say, you know, I'm Jesus or I'm the devil or I'm uh, John the Baptist or I'm Richard Nixon. You know, so it's, it means nothing. He's just nuts. So. And I yeah. like the fact, by the way, that I, which I should have mentioned earlier, that his mission is not to stop the plague. That's not right. what they're doing. They, they want a sample of the virus so they can develop a cure for it. Yeah. Um, and, and that's it. Right. That this is not about stopping it. This is not about getting a happy ending. Uh, this is not in that regard. And saving the five billion people who died and preventing right. it. This is a matter of they're dead. That's already right. done. Yep. Um, we we're just trying to move forward from that and bring the world back. Well, at least till the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well. Well. Also, um, in in Terminator, the first one, when they're they're. Uh, have the guy in jail, I think the Michael Bean's character's in jail, they come out and tell Linda Hamilton's character, uh, Paul Winfield and, and uh, the guy that always is at the, the horror conventions, uh, what's his name? The and guy Henderson. that plays... Yeah, Hendrickson, yeah, so Paul Winfield and Hendrickson come out and say, yeah, uh, this guy, this guy, you know, basically he's on lie detecting tests, and, and he's passing, because he's, he's absolutely insane, but to, but he truly believes what he's saying, and this is the same thing with Bruce Lewis. Bruce Lewis's character, they could put him on a lie detector test, and he could say everything to them, and and they're just gonna say, okay, he's passing, but you know, obviously he's insane. Uh, it doesn't matter. But there's he, also no no concern about a paradox because because everybody's about to die, and so if everyone's about to die, you know, you're basically yeah. taking the giant etcher sketch that is the Earth. And shaking it up. So yeah. there's only so much damage you could do to the timeline 
right. at that particular point. Right. Well, and I also like Bruce Willis, you know, when Madeline Stowe's shocked that he kills a couple of people and, and he's, he basically, in not so many words, but at least alludes to it, that, well, they're all dead. These guys are going to be dead in two months anyway from the pandemic. So it's, it, I probably, you know, spared him in a sense. Um, right. You know, because it's like you said, yeah. I mean, so, so what he discovers is the 12 monkeys, he, he's trying to search for the 12 monkeys and it the leads back. Yeah, the army of the 12 monkeys, and he, it leads back to Brad Pitt's character, and he believes that he was the one, meaning Bruce Willis, was the one that gave Brad Pitt the idea. And that's when I thought it was a paradox. Yeah. Because I'd forgotten about the actual end of the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same here, too. And, and also, well, oh, I remember... Oh, it is something of a paradox, because he gives him the idea, because that, that's a paradox. Um, even if it's not, you know... The, the most important thing that happens in the in the movie, um, yeah. but I don't know if they've, they've proven that paradoxes are impossible. <laughs> right, right, uh, right, right. But it's all the paradoxes were really just with his character, and had nothing really to do with the the infection, because the infection was was being even though it was related to Christopher Plummer, Brad Pitt's father's character in the film. David Morse was working independently and was going to do it whether no matter what Bruce Willis did. And it was only at the airport that they figure out, Madeline Stokes figure out that it's actually been David Morse the entire time. Right. Right. So when, when he said that he got the idea from him, I thought, oh, well, Bruce Willis caused the virus by going, by interacting with Brad Pitt but it wouldn't have happened if the virus didn't kill everybody and they didn't send Bruce Willis back. So chicken egg, right. what? Uh, right. But then you find out that it was actually developed by somebody else. And you're like, Oh, okay. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so the thing was, is that when Bruce Willis finds out, or at least thinks the paradox is occurring, and it was Brad Pitt's character that did all the, the deed. It makes him even go more insane and, and more, like you said, Mike, wishing that, okay, yeah, maybe the real world is 1996 the whole time. And I'm just going into these dream states of insanity. And that, that, that was actually a pretty cool idea. And I don't remember if when I first watched the film, if I, fell for it or not because it was so long ago. But if I had first watched it last night for the first time, I think I would have thought they were going to go that route, which is the unreliable narrator. Well, and I think, like I said, it would have been, it would have worked pretty good too. It wouldn't have been a cheat like we've seen in, in like that twin movie, but anyway, go on. Like, like I, said, I think with that, um, with that uh, text at the beginning of the film, they were trying to let people know right. that no, no, the future was real. But I honestly think most people on a first watch aren't aren't going to necessarily remember that forty five minutes into the movie. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. And, and to be honest, like, nope. I, that movie that we just watched a couple of weeks ago, I didn't even bother reading that phrase at the beginning. That that you know, and it was only after you guys 
mentioned it during the podcast. Uh, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's what, that's what it means. I get it now. It, it was supposed to be a commentary on exploiting people and their, and exploiting themselves and all that other crap. And, and so you're right. I mean, a lot of people probably just read it and it just goes out that, you know, their mind and they forget all about it. So who knows? Um, so what else? Uh, I did like how they also tricked us to make us think that Christopher Plummer's character was just this evil businessman type of guy. And then they even had him throw a southern drawl. And because if it ain't going to be an English uh, accent, it's going to be a, a southern drawl to make a villain. Uh, but again, that was all well, they, red herring, too. Well, they because they get to be villains, too. They're the villains in all the best movies. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so so they what they did was they have him actually say, "Oh no, we yeah we we should probably put better security." Unfortunately, the guy that is his lead scientist either became mentally insane after he got the job, or he tricked his background check to even to get in there in the first place or something. But unfortunately, the guy that is the head of Everything is the is the evil mastermind, and that's David Morris's character. And so, even Christopher Palmer's character doesn't even know that the guy under him is completely insane. And and Madeline Stowe knows because she's she's you know he's somewhat known, and she's talked to him at at that book. Is he insane though? I mean, people. Well, suck. he's quest to he's quest to be. I mean, people suck. He's, uh, you know what? He's not insane. He would not go be insane if he went to trial, but he is insane in the sense that he has cost a pay. In other words, there's just I brought this up before Truman Capote wrote it, and um, and I mean, he's got some good points. Well, (laughs) but it's not for him to decide. Why not? Somebody has to. <laughs> who, who else is going to? A mouse. Uh, a Z, a Z. All right. How about, all right. None of these people have a right to make these decisions. And they're, they're all all sociopaths, cross to be motherfuckers. I I don't know. I mean, maybe they're good leaders. Uh, <laughs> I love Weston with you, Phil. I, uh, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, yeah, but but yeah, uh, as I was saying about that about Truman Capote, there's two types of behavioral health insane people. There's the the ones that wackadoodles, that the true wackadoodles who would not go on trial because they're incompetent due to insanity, and that includes people that are schizo and and split personalities and all these other people. And then there's the ones that are cluster B and bipolar and all these others who do terrible things, who know. On the, that they're they're doing bad things, but they do it anyway because they're just evil, and and so but be, the psychology and medical profession lists them both as behavioral health issues, but the the judicial system only recognizes the first group, the ones that are like schizos and and split personalities and stuff. So you're right, this guy is evil, but. Or he's insane, but not in the, the insane like Brad Pitt's character is insane. He's I don't know, man. I think he made a good call. He's like, of course, he's 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 a 
He's a mother. People but, suck. But, Get rid of him. You know what's funny, too, is he was suiciding. Right. Because he, he opened the thing right right at the airport. I mean, this, he's this a person, is, and he also sucks. Well, he, he knows he, what he's doing. He knows he's yeah. going to end yeah. the world. There's yes. a reason why he's taking the trip around the which by the way I like that they 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 uh they do focus on like exactly the order of the cities and later on we see him buying his tickets and that's how we we know for sure he's the right guy. Yep. Uh, you know, well you know. even if he hadn't made the whole trip I have no idea. They never get into, you know, how the disease works or how 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 it acts and what symptoms you have and how long it takes. They never give us any of that. Um, but they do. But they I do imagine, give us which cities go uh, it, where it appears, and, and it's the exact same flight pattern. Right. That but I was about to finish my sentence by saying, um, but it doesn't really matter once he opens it up in the airport because he exposes the TSI guy and himself and anybody around them, and then that TSA guy is going to spread it to anybody else who comes through the metal detector, and wherever the hell they're going, they're going to take it with them. That right, and my point. My point in raising the cities is that when you look at the cities, he's going to both coasts of the United States. Mm-hmm. He's going to multiple continents. He is yeah. well aware he's going to be creating a pandemic. He yeah. is seeding this to be a pandemic. He's, a, he's, now, he's trying to create a pandemic. Yeah, because right, he's exactly. directly going to Sao Paulo, I think it was, and then he was going to go, uh, go to uh, – what's that? He was going to Rio, San Francisco. Oh, yeah, it was Rio. Yeah, and then he was heading to, to China. Because they, they even said Peking, and I thought that was funny because the city's now called Beijing. But yeah, so he was going uh, to Asia too. I don't know if they list the Middle East or Europe or Africa, but but at least they they list North, South America, and Asia and, and East Asia for sure. Mm-hmm. Now maybe he's delusional enough to think that he's not um, that he is not going to die in the plague. But in that case, he'd probably still be that delusional to think he's not going to die when he opens it up at the airport either. Right. So, or, or, or maybe he, he doesn't even care. I mean, we don't know his motivation, right? He could be some 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 cult type person. Like this is the will or something. Who knows, right? So I'm going to die too. This is okay. I don't know. You know, maybe he's looking at himself as a martyr, right? We don't know, right? Mm-hmm. So, but you're right. He may actually think you're right, Mike, that he's immune to it too. Maybe he is. We don't know, right? We never find that out. I think maybe, it's more maybe. likely that he just doesn't care. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. Mike, what's your thoughts? Your thoughts? I, I think it doesn't matter. I mean, it's sort of like the the uh, exactly what the plague is and how does it kill you, and it doesn't matter. It's not relevant to the actual story being told because right. the story is about dealing with the after effects of it. Right. Um, right. Not about um, treating it or curing it. Right? I mean, that's the ultimate goal, but the cure is not part of the plot. That is true. That is true. Yeah. It's just that's, that's one thing I appreciate about this movie is that it, it forgoes your typical Hollywood happy ending, right? It's like, for a second at the end, you're like, oh, they found the good, they're going to stop them and everything's going to be okay. And it's like, nope. Everybody still fucking dies. <laughs> yeah. Ah. I, also, 
is very dark. Uh, I do like too the um, his dream, which isn't really a dream. It's it's uh, his memory. Um, yeah, yeah, that that he's been suppressing, and, and pieces start filling in uh, as he meets Madeline Stowe's character and, and other characters and stuff. And you know, you don't know who's involved. You don't know it's Madeline Stowe because in the dream she has, or, or memory, I should say, she has blonde oh, hair. Right, but. What it was is she died it because they're trying to escape uh, from the, the uh, officials. Yeah, or a wig. Well, and, and, and I yeah. do agree that it wasn't really a surprise that that was Bruce Willis at the end. Um, right. But you're still curious as to, well, how does that end up happening and why? Right, right. Because at first I thought maybe it was Brad Pitt's character, right? Because they, he is all messy like Brad Pitt's. And then as you get closer, you begin to figure it out that, okay, it's a paradox where he's watching himself get shot. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, actually there's a, one of his dreams. It is Brad Pitt that he sees yeah, with the right, ponytail right. And, and, the, and, the, and the suitcase. And, oh, that's right. He uh, says something to the little kid. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So, yeah. So his memory is not just, if, you know, gappy, it's wrong. You know, he's trying, or, or he's trying to fill it in based on, you know, the current information. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that that Terry Gilliam pointed out was uh, it was a surprise. So there's a, a scene later in the film where they're sitting in a theater that's showing a uh, uh, a Hitchcock marathon. What's a Hitchcock? And, yeah, and uh, they're watching Vertigo, and again that oh that was, in, that was yeah yeah and the birds too. Are, yeah, and the birds and so they have the uh, that's that poop poop Psycho is like is also playing. So they have the although we don't see footage of it. Uh, but all tying into the, the, the themes of the, the film is that when they went back to that scene, he realized like they were, uh, they were in, intercutting that scene, ended up being intercut the same way, which I didn't remember, uh, the same way that Hitchcock intercut it, uh, like directed, uh, cut that scene with the, with Jimmy Stewart. Uh, it was the same way they ended up cutting the scene between, uh, Stowe and, Bruce Willis. But the other thing he pointed out was I thought it was was neat was that the character, Madeline Stowe's character was supposed to be blonde and she was supposed to wear a dark wig. And after, oh. and then like, and, but since Madeline Stowe has dark hair, they just give her a blonde wig. And he said, oh, he realized after, like, after they, they made the film, he's like, oh, she ends up becoming a Hitchcock blonde because Hitchcock always would cast blondes in, in his roles. Um, or often cast bonds in his roles. He, he had some weird obsessions. Uh, but, um, yeah, so that was, that was just a little interesting trivial piece. But then back to that, Tiffy, you know, sometimes. Grace, you, Janet, oh, yeah, oh, Doris, Doris Day, yep. was it? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, continue. I was saying, it's one of those little things of, uh, serendipity. You know, it was unintentional. Yep, yep. But it, Oh, and you know what's interesting about, uh, uh, that movie too, um, Vertigo, is that Kim Novak dyes her hair or wears a, a black wig in that at one point too. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I said that, that which is that she does the complete opposite, which is kind of funny in that movie. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So I, and that was all unintentional, you think? But but they wanted that scene though about the time travel from Vertigo. I think intentionally. Yes. And, yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. What else uh, do you want to talk about? Uh, anything else on your list, Mike, that, that we missed that, that you want to bring up? Oh. Trying to read some notes I wrote however many months ago. 
Um, I like the fact that it's easy to miss when they, um, when the Army of the Twelve Monkeys finally captured, they kidnap Brad Pitt's father. And we're still under the impression that they're the ones that are going to be unleashing the plague. And they're kidnapping the father to gain access to the biochemistry lab and get the, uh, uh, get the virus samples. The father's been made aware from Bruce Willis's rantings. And he says, I've, I've, I'm, I'm cut off. I, you know, I, I don't have access. I've removed anymore. myself from the equation. Right. I, I don't know the code anymore. Right. Right. I thought that was that was neat because it, it gives his character a little bit. I don't want to say redemption because he hasn't been an evil character at this point, uh, but it shows him to not be the the sinister mastermind. And even though um, it's a rantings of a lunatic, you know, you're, it makes sense, right? He's saying, well, he can't trust his son. His son is crazy. Um, so. Yeah, why not? Why not be be cautious? So I, I like that as a little throwaway line. It did not have to be there, uh, but I appreciated that little detail. Yeah, I, I I liked it because they wanted us to think he was this evil mastermind and maybe a guy that was going to um, be this, you know, the typical CEO villain type guy or whatever. And he was in no way that at all. And um, so when he says he took himself out of the chain intentionally so they can't blackmail him, torture him or whatever, never mind he's telling David Morse's character, the guy that he thinks is, is, is a good man, to all right, strengthen up that security here so we can, you know, be more safe. And so, yeah, so he has this redeeming quality. And I think it's redeeming, like, like you said, not because – he was a villain ever in the film, but it's redeeming in the sense that it's another Hollywood trope that um, a Gilliam takes away from us, where we're just thinking that he's just going to be one of those, these dirtbags and uh, executive types, and he really isn't. Well, and at the same time, flipping the trope, the I, I could even because even back in '96, I could have seen this. Um, I know they certainly made issues of it with um, Sounds of Lambs and having a uh, a transsexual villain, uh, even though the Hannibal Lecter says he's not transsexual. Um, but you could have argued, you know, having a behavioral health individual being the one responsible for ending the world, meaning like a noodle. crazy person like Brad Pitt. You know, people could say, well, that's leaning into a trope. Well, it turns out he's not. He just cares about animals and he's doing something symbolic. And I, and I actually love cause the, the imagery of uh, that Terry Gilliam gets of having the animals run free in Philadelphia, uh, much of which is actual footage. There's only two shots I think that are CG, which are the giraffes, which they 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 couldn't that that they couldn't do. They had lions, they had elephants, they had bears, uh, and they had tigers, um, and the uh, flamingos. The flamingos were CGI, or it's like probably natural real footage imposed on. Uh, that's what I was saying. thinking, yeah. Yeah. Even with the drafts, uh, the drafts looked real, but I think they were just imposed. But anyway, right. anyway. But it looked great. I thought there were, those were some really neat scenes and it does explain why there was why there was there a lion in theory 
explain. I mean, it's supposed to be 20 years later. I don't know the lion could have survived decades. Maybe there was a lioness around, and it's, this is son of lion. I don't know. Uh, explain why, why these animals are there, way outside of their, their natural habitat. Indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's just, just the image. And, I, and again, I, I really do like, you know, Gilliam is someone who does have a very distinctive style. Uh, and his style is very much on display. If you look at his sets, you know, his, which, which are, they're all filmed on location. I thought this was a neat thing he said was that, you know, one of the reasons he likes filming in real places is that there's always things in there that you would never put in there if you were designing it. Um, and you don't know what they are for, you don't know what they do, but they just make things more interesting. And so most of his sets just are filled and cluttered with, with stuff. Um, would make, which gives it a very chaotic look, uh, an interesting look, a very lived-in look. Um, sometimes very busy. Uh, think about the uh, when Bruce Willis is being interrogated on his returns to the future. He's being interrogated by this giant orb, you know, which, which is the interface between him and the scientists most of the time. Yeah, that was one but of the scenes not- when I saw it originally that I said, okay, this movie is kind of stupid. But rewatching well, it, not- it's, it's cool. Yeah, but it's not a uh, it's not just what you would expect, like a single camera lens. There's it's like this giant sphere covered like a dozen different screens, including a screen of Bruce Willis so he can see himself, which is just strange. Um, But it's it's way more chaotic. It's way more busy and clustered. And it's it's just a distinct look that you just. You know it when you see it, if you know Gilliam's films. You, you, you can tell just by looking at it. He also likes things like fisheye lenses, but again, I think he pulled a lot of that back in this film compared to some of the other stuff he's done. Yeah, and I did like your point, Mike, that Brad Pitt's character um, turns out to just be a little kooky and really just one of the free animals, even if uh, the whole film we're, we're thinking he may be the villain. And, and so I, I thought that there was a a really good twist as well. Um, so he may be insane, but he wasn't a murderer. Um, at least not intentionally, even though he technically would be for letting lions loose. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's pretty cool. Um, let's see. Anything else, Mike? Um, I like the fact that you flipped the script at the end. Uh, Oh, I've, I've, yeah, there's, there's a lot of misdirecting in here. So there's a scene before he goes, to the, he goes to a party to confront Brad Pitt, which is at the dad's house. And Bruce Willis and uh, Madeline Stowe have just uh, spent the night together, but not spent the night together. Um, not, you know, no sex, but they'd spent the night. And you see him move in on her and it's basically attack her. And when he's at the party, you see a line dropped on the TV about a body being found that is presumed to be a doctor. So you think he's murdered her. So I thought that was an interesting misdirect, because then when he leaves the party, he opens up the trunk of the car, and she's tied up in the trunk. Right, and she because they've established him. that to him, they're all dead. He, he, he's yeah. killing a dead person. So it doesn't really matter. Um, yeah, that's true. Right, right. So I thought that was a nice inversion. And then, then, you know, when he comes back the final time, 
Um, he realizes or he believes that he was wrong, that it's all a delusion. He wants to be arrested and the world is wonderful, that there is no plague. Um, and so yeah, that he's just sick. And, and she's the one that's trying to convince him because he was right. Cause he tells her the story about the boy in the well who just made it up. Right. And, and this is a back, this is a story running through the background on the radio and on TV throughout the entire movie. And he tells her, no, no, I remember this. This happened when I was a kid. He, he's not really down the well. Uh, he's just hiding in the barn and they're going to find him later. And after he disappears the second time after the party, we find out that, yeah, he was absolutely right. They find the boy was hiding out. And this is what finally convinces her of all the stuff that's happened. This is the last thing, the last piece that convinces her to that he's telling the truth. So now she's on board when he returns. He's in complete denial. He thinks he's crazy. He wants right. the world to, to survive. And now it's flipped. She's got to convince him. And I thought that right. was a nice inversion. And then very quickly, she runs to make the, the, the phone call to the carpet cleaner or whatever they were, um, which was supposed to be his future contact. And she runs back overjoyed because it was just a carpet cleaner. It wasn't, in fact, the uh, people from the future listening in. She just got an answering machine. And she's elated because, yes, he is really crazy. And then she tells him the message that she left. He, the he, message he, he, he that he's over. heard. And he it's like, so, so it's this constant, like, sort of back and forth of emotions between these two characters. Even though I, I think mostly the audience knows what's going on. You know, yeah. they know they're going to be disappointed. They know that it's probably real. Uh, but it's just all these little flips and switches and turns. I really, I really, really liked. I think it's a really smart script. Um to keep things uh, up in the air. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that scene was one of the most uh, frightening scenes when, even though we knew, they knew exactly what was going to happen, but when she came back and she says, I, I just left this message and she starts saying it, and then he interrupts her and finishes it off and then goes, Merry Christmas, because that was the last thing she says on the message. That was like horrific. In a sense, for some reason, I just felt, wow, that's that was pretty awesome. Even though I knew that was, what was going to happen, and then they keep on, like you said, they keep on going back and forth. So now he's back on board, believing everything is real, and not uh, him being insane. But then when they see the drafts running down the street, they go, oh my god, thank god, it, we we're right. But it's not the end of the world. And then of course that's. That's not the, the twist. The real twist is David Morse's character. Um, and that 12 Monkeys was just a red herring. And then that's when he leaves his voicemail, right? Um, that it's not really the 12 Monkeys and it's someone else and whatever. And then, yeah, and then the whole airport. So they go to the airport with the wigs and then we find out that he's seeing himself being murdered in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it is a, uh, if, if you can get, for anybody who hasn't seen the film that wants to see it, if you can get over the little quirkinesses that Terry Gilliam has in his films, then this this will be a very rewarding um, science fiction thriller with all these cool, um, tightly knit things in the script. Um, and the thing was, is when I was 20-whatever years old, when I saw it, I couldn't get over the, the Terry Gilliam stuff, but when I rewatched it last night, um, all those things were fine. All his little quirkinesses. 
Uh, well, again, I think out of all of his films, it might be the least quirky, you know, even sure. which was intentional. He was trying not to be Terry right. Gilliam, as I said, and he, he didn't completely succeed in that. But I think, you know, certainly the art style is there. You know, some of the directorial real touches are there. There's a little bit of fisheye here and there. Um, it is not nearly as over the top as something like Time Bandits or Brazil. Uh, right, right. Or or the Fisher King or uh, yeah, Adventures Fisher. of Baron 2000. Right, right. That's another one, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that is true. So, um, and, and, you know, you're all, and, and at least in this case, you are dealing with someone who's mad. Right. Yes. There's madness is a running theme, even, even though Bruce Willis isn't wrong. He is definitely crazy at various parts of the film. His, his sanity is not right. well tethered because of the trauma of the, of the time travel. Um, right. Right. Yeah. I think little things like they see in like the, the, the moment where he travels back in time to 1912 or 1917. Yeah. Sorry, not 1912. Uh, and he gets um, the bull in his leg in World War One. Right, right. Oh, and I love and, how how she knew about uh, that character, Juan or whatever his name was, and how he's yeah. So, so she knew all about that, and then this other person that went back to ten hundred and sixty four or whatever and stuff. But anyway, continue, Mike. Yeah. That, well, and also though, she Jose, says she says that when he first sees him that there's something she doesn't know. So you don't believe it. Say no, but there's just something about him I can't put my finger on. And it's that she's seen him before because she used that picture in her book yeah. where he's in the picture with the soldier from with, with Jose from uh, uh, with John Cena from World War Two or World War One. Right. Yeah. in the so, French, French uh, ditches, the French trenches. Yeah. Right. And, and there's a and there's a substantial gap. It's easy. I don't think they bring a lot of attention to her making that statement. You know, certainly they draw attention to her seeing the um, seeing the picture because this is, yeah. again, one of the things that confirms to her that he's telling the truth. Yeah. Uh, but the idea that, no, 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 she's seen this before because she's been using, she used that picture in her book. I don't think they, they don't, they don't underline it. They don't uh, highlight it in the, the way you might normally expect. So I just think it's a really smart script. You know, they, they do a lot of checkoffs all over the place, right? Checkoffs. I've seen them before. Checkoffs. Yeah. Phone message. Chekhov's spray-painted message on the side of the building outside the headquarters of the 12 Monkeys, uh, and so on and so forth. Yep. It's true. Um, all right. I just uh, want to mention that I, I guffawed because um, I, I had forgotten that he has a small part in this movie. Um, when uh, Christopher Maloney came on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just because. <laughs> Yeah, he ended up being on Law and Order SVU for years and years. Oh, yeah, well, this is, this is when he got his job as a uh, New York police detective. Right. <laughs> right. Oh, let me ask just you this. like his first week on the job. Yeah, let, let me ask you this, this, because this was an interesting thing, and I had to look it up after I saw it, but the woman on the plane who is a real estate agent or accountant or, or marketing, whatever the hell she said she was, is actually the woman scientist – and Doctor yes. from the Future, and what was the what? What did you guys get out of that scene? Why was that? Nothing. It was just an interesting, cool thing thing that he put in there, I guess. So obviously well, she, she was cast. Was that she? Um, 
was that she's she she she'll she'll get the the sample, right? He's got the briefcase full of full of the germs, which yep. for some reason was allowed as a carry on. Uh, yep. So clearly, this is before nine eleven. Uh, but yeah, I so I, so I I assume that it does end up kind of being a happy ending. He completes his mission. He pinpoints the source of the disease. They're going to be able oh, to get it. Sh- she's going to be the one to get it. Gotcha. Right, because of him. And uh, so, so it, like I said, it's a, it's a kind of sort of a happy ending. It's not like the right. happiest ending. Right. But it's so she was, a, she was intentionally there, not as a coincidence. Gotcha, gotcha. Right. All right. Gotcha. Okay. That's now that makes it more sense. Makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Juan goes, I mean, Jose goes back, gives, gives him the gun. He gets shot. Then she gets sent back as well and intentionally sits next to Morris's character on the airplane because she's the one that's going to get the sample. Excellent. I get it. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. So there is a kind of a happy ending. I didn't put that together. That's cool. Yeah. That is kind of cool, actually. I thought it was just a coincidence that she just happened to be at the airport, too, in, in 1996. But you're right. It makes sense that she was sent back. Yeah. That is cool. Well, and they do do things. Like, they have him – meeting people in the future that he's already met in the past but they haven't been sent on that mission so the time travel crosses oh. a lot right so oh and, and i get i, you I see get a lot it, of time travel movies where everything happens chronologically even though there's no reason for them to yeah and and in this case they do they have them just kind of jumping all over the place all right and now i i know why she says she was an insurance that's what the job was, insurance, because right. she's the insurance, not – yeah, yeah, yeah. That's nice. I like that. I like that because she didn't say she was an accountant or, or whatever I thought she said. She said she was an insurance. And I was like, ah, brilliant. Well, what a nice Easter egg there. So the good news is five billion people will die. Knock on wood because that, that's what's going <laughs> to happen with the fucking nukes. But anyway, continue. So five people, so five billion people will die, and who knows? Maybe that's maybe that's why it's all gray and cloudy. Maybe it's nuclear winter because, you know, hey, what the hell? The world is going to hell. Why not hit the button? <laughs> I mean, what kind of? Oh, I just assumed. It, it, I, I, I just assumed it was regular winter when he went back. I mean, in the present. But you're right. It could have been even everything went chaotic, and and then they just nuked everybody at that time too. So that's well, and and I remember the there was a there were there were a couple of series. Maybe one was like National Geographic, one was History Channel. It was competing ideas, um uh shows with the same idea, which was what happens if you know if there's no people anymore? What happens if everybody dies or disappears? Yeah. And uh, how long is like take what what happens to the world? And yeah. uh one of the things they point out is like if everyone disappeared, all these like chemical plants and nuclear Power plants are all going to start to melt down. You're going to get accidents. Um, you know, horrible things would end up happening unless everybody was like diligent and shut everything down before they went and scuttled off the globe. Uh, so, so, you know, so even even if people, if we did have something like The Last of Us or even this world here where people survived, if it wasn't the right if people, it happens that too survived, fast. Yeah, we're, they wouldn't be able to shut down. Yeah, it could still be fun. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, actually, at that point, it doesn't even matter, to be honest. But, but uh, do you even want to live in that type of world? But, like, the road. <laughs> Jesus. But, but yeah, that's that's scary, too. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, Mike, oh, if, if all the people disappeared, the animals would, it would be, like, similar to, like, um, you know, uh, ships that are sunk at the bottom of the oceans that become really good uh, living quarters for various animals. I would assume that's what you were going to say. Not that. Oh, there'll still be disasters. <laughs> oh, even the animals. Jesus Christ. Well, the animals will come back. I mean, the, the dead ones will come back. But you know, the you'll, you will get repopulation, and it's what happens. You know, it's been through five major mass extinctions in the past, and things come back. They just come back different. Right. Humans right. disappear. The same thing's going to happen. World's going to be shitty for a while, and then uh, things will come back. And, and the cockroaches will inherit the world. Cockroaches, rats, rodents, anything small that reproduces fast will be the ones that will most likely adapt to fill the, the empty niches to replace all the stuff that we killed off. There you go. There you go. Uh, damn, is Taiwan. That Taiwan, is, that's, that's where it's all going to happen. Shut up, oh, Phil. Damn. Son of a bitch. Shut up, you paranoid asshole. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have dreams well, of horror. Well, let's share this to any of our younger listeners. You know, we've uh, we are we are Cold War war children. We were raised with the idea that we were living under Chekhov's nuclear threat, and uh, right. they never fired the damn gun. So we've been waiting for this shoe to drop for a long, long time. Damn it! And part of us is going to be a little disappointed if it doesn't. We're watching the fireworks go up. Mike, it's different, though. We're not talking about the Soviets anymore. We're talking about Red red China. There's a big difference. The Soviets at least had. Oh, my goodness. I'm about to log off Skype. Are we going to talk about the movie anymore? No, but Brezhnev and all that. Are we about to talk about the movie, or should I hang up? Uh, I think we can probably wrap it up here. Um, okay. So, but but yeah yeah that's fair that's fair. I, I'm just yeah it's just like Mike had to bring up the end of the world. <laughs> well this movie does it. The movie brings up the end of the world. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's that's one of the themes of the movie along with no. sanity and insanity. Right, so let me do this. Let me do this. Right, and spirals. So Bruce Willis is what you're telling us. Okay. So knock on wood and name of the Father Son Holy Spirit. Name it. Okay. <laughs> so. All right, so um, I guess we can wrap up this film. So uh, let's give our final thoughts on it. But before we do, uh, Eric, you actually do another podcast with your buddy Dan. I do. It's Agent Orange's podcast called the Scancy Podcast. That's spelled A-S-K-A-N-C-I-T-Y. You can find it wherever you get podcasts. And, Eric, we also do another podcast, uh, the main podcast on this network. What's that? Yes, that is Dark Discussion. And what's that? What do they talk about on that one? Stuff, not here. Dark stuff. Dark stuff. This is the Dark. podcast where I shouldn't have to plug it's anything. So. Oh, but I'm, I'm I'm trying to help promote your podcast <laughs> and other people's podcasts. Uh, Mike, me, you, Barrett, and Sean Fox are doing a brand new podcast. What's that all about? Yes, uh, the rise of the cordyceps infected. infected. Yes, right. Rise of the Cordyceps Infected, which is, uh, which is the we'll be recording the first real episode tomorrow night, and it is an, uh, going to be talking about the uh, what is it called HBO miniseries. Is it a miniseries or regular series? It's a regular series, season one. It's the HBO series, The Last of Us, based on the yep. video game 
coincidentally also called The Last of Us. That is correct. Uh, and one of the co-creators of that is one of the sh- two showrunners, as a matter of fact. And the guy that did Chernobyl is the other Chernobyl showrunner. And uh, Eric actually makes a, a quick um, showing on, on the, the little podcast we did in the introduction. So thank you, Eric. We appreciate that. Yeah, it's just a little tiny. Uh, all right, so let's give our final thoughts on this film here, uh, The Twelve Monkeys, or just simply Twelve Monkeys. Uh, let's start with you, Eric. Uh, I like this movie. It's a solid sci-fi film. Uh, I think the acting is excellent. I'm generally not a Terry Gilliam fan, but I but I like this movie, um, despite his quirky shit. Um, so, yeah, I definitely recommend Twelve Monkeys. All right. Um, oddly, uh, Eric pretty much summed it up perfectly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I like I love Gilliam's uh, Monty Python work, but yeah, usually I'm not interested in his real quirky stuff. And the reason why I didn't like the film, I mean, I liked it, but I didn't love the film the first time. Uh, but when rewatching it twenty something years later, last night, uh, it was it was phenomenal film. Um, it's a great film, and um, I highly recommend, especially if you like science fiction. Uh, films that are kind of scary. There's there's some kind of scary stuff in there, uh, even if there it is a little quirky. Uh, so yeah, I recommend. Uh, Mike, yeah, I, I like it. I think the weirdness works given the the theme of madness in it, and that you're seeing events uh, unfold through the eyes of characters who are not necessarily the most reliable narrators. Um, I, I think performances by Bruce Will. I, I think performances all around are very good. Uh, but I think Bruce Willis and Brad Pitt give very um, atypical performances for them, uh, and it certainly opened up my eyes to uh, to the range of both actors uh, back in the day. I love the film since I first saw it. Uh, it's one of my favorite science fiction films of the 90s uh, and still is very high on my list, and it's, uh, I think it's well worth watching. And if you're at all uh, interested in Brian Terry Gilliam's uh, work, like I said, I think this is the least weird and the least uh, kooky out of the stuff that he does. I think he's at his most restrained, and uh, that'll give you a hint um, if you watch this as to what you might expect coming down the road, because it only gets more bizarre. And, uh, yeah, that's a fair point. Um, yeah, Terry Gilliam, once again, um, uh, post Monty Python um, direction. Um, yeah, Mike summed that up perfectly uh, for for his directions. While with the the Monty Python, that's a, that's a little different, and you expect all that quirkiness. Um, so the film uh, once again was directed by Terry Gilliam, uh, written by David and Janet Peoples, uh, based off of the short film by Chris Marker called La Jete. It stars uh, Bruce Willis, uh, Madeline Stowe, Brad Pitt, uh, Christopher Plummer. Uh, David Morse, uh, and uh, as we mentioned, a handful of other known character actors. Uh, the film has uh, over 80-something percent good reviews, was nominated for a number of awards. Uh, it was during um, the rise of Brad Pitt and uh, Bruce Willis becoming a movie star and Madeline Stowe uh, as uh, A-lister. And um, actually, pre uh, Christopher Thomas' Academy Awards, so uh, it, was, it was pretty cool look, looking back. Um, so uh, I guess we can uh, wrap it up. So with all that stated, Eric, why don't you lead us out? 
All right. Thanks for listening to us talk about 12 Monkeys. Come back next time. We'll probably record another episode in 2025.